Well, let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to this book called Hebrews. Maybe you've heard of it before. Hebrews chapter 9. It has been such a long time since we've been in it. Some of you may not even know any longer that there is a book called Hebrews. But we're going we're gonna to jump into this. I, I was looking at this. We, we began the study of Hebrews the second week of January. So we've been studying it for 22 weeks this year. But we've just come off a 10-week break from Hebrews. So almost half the time we've been in it, we've been out of it. So I think it's going to be necessary for a bit of a recap. More than one person has told me I have no idea what Hebrews is about, <laughs> which uh, doesn't instill a lot of confidence in, in me. But um, anyway, um, it makes me wonder about my teaching ability. But uh, in any case, we're going to... Um, we're going to do a re- good recap of the book, but I don't need to go all the way back to chapter one. We'll be here forever. Um, what I am going to do is start with the theme of the book and take us from there back to chapter seven. The theme of the book, and as you always see every week on the title, is Jesus is better. That's a very simple one. But what has the author been trying to establish from all a, a, of that? Why has he been wanting to establish the fact that Jesus is superior throughout the entire book? Why is that the heart of the book? It's all to do with access to God. And we did talk about this uh, a couple of weeks in a row. row. Uh, Man's problem is that we're separated from God. We live in a a, a box, a material box. We cannot get out into the supernatural and care who you talk to or what they say. Um, I was talking to somebody saying they were in City Center today. I think it was Will City Center and the the Harry Christians were out there and and chanting and whatnot. And I've, I've talked to them. I've gotten a book from them. And apparently... You can think hard enough and meditate and get the right place. You can actually transport yourself to another planet. And it's this idea that you can get outside the physical into the spiritual, into the supernatural. But I'm here to tell you that you cannot. Man is confined in time and space. We're separated from God, and we're ultimately separated from him by our sin. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 2, you might remember we looked at this verse. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear but your iniquities have separated you from your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear now this was not just a message to to israel as if that was their problem this is the problem of mankind it's not that god cannot hear it's that he will not hear and because we are separated from him by our sin ultimately so we need something or we need someone to be able to bring us to God, to open the gateway to him. And so the author has argued for the superiority of the person of Jesus in the first six chapters of the book. That's what he's been doing. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua, all through those chapters. But the heart of the letter is to communicate another aspect of his superiority, and this is the real key, that he has a superior priesthood. It is greater than the Levitical priesthood. So while those first six chapters focus on the superiority of his person, from chapter 7 on, he's focusing on the superiority of his priesthood. So if you can just get that part in there, you're going to be fine. All right? Now, why is this important? I thought about this and tried to think of an easier way to explain it. The reason this aspect is important because it's one of the three elements that make up Old Testament worship. Okay? For Old Testament worship to take place, you had the priesthood, you had the covenant, and you had the sacrifices, okay? Those three things. Priesthood, covenant, 
sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament economy, those three things constituted all of worship, okay? But none of them, mark it, none of them gave you direct access to God. Okay, only the high priest had access to God, and we'll look at that later on in a bit. So for the author to prove that Jesus is, has a superior priesthood, okay, he's also going to show them that he has a, is a mediator of a more superior covenant, okay, and that that covenant was ratified by better sacrifices. So the three things have to be addressed, don't they? If we're saying something is new in terms of priesthood, covenant, and sacrifices, well, we have to see Jesus in all three of those things. Now, obviously, to prove his point, the author has to provide proof from the Old Testament. He's talking to Jews. That's what they're primarily concerned about. What God established in the Old Testament, these, these things, the, 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 the elements of, of worship. And we're not going to go back through all the Old Testament verses we've looked up up to this point. But I will just back up to where he's introduced Jesus as the better priest, chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he provided Old Testament proof, Psalm 110, verse 4. If you look at chapter 7, he quotes it in verses 20 and 21. Let's just look at that real quick in chapter 7 of Hebrews. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, won't go through all the Melchizedek stuff again, but he introduced Melchizedek back in chapter 5. And then he took a long pause because he wanted to challenge his hearers because they were dull of hearing because this is difficult stuff. I challenge you today. Like, listen, you got to really pay attention because this is, this is deep stuff he gets into. And the quote that he's in, in referencing here references um, an encounter between Abraham and then this mysterious priest who was also a king named Melchizedek it's in Genesis 14. And in that account, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and then Abraham tithed, he gave to Melchizedek. And so what we saw there is that Melchizedek is greater than even Abraham, the father of the faith, because the blesser is always greater than the blessee. So his argument goes like this, since Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and since a priest like Melchizedek is, is prophesied about by King David, he's the one that wrote Psalm 110 verse 4, then that Levitical priesthood got established in the Old Testament clearly wasn't perfect. I mean, if, if God meant to replace it, why would you replace something if it was perfect? Does that make sense? And we see that at the beginning of chapter 7 and verse 11. Just look at that. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So you see his, his point. Why would it need to be replaced if it were perfect? The point is it wasn't perfect. So that was his, his really first point. Um, Jesus is the prophesied of priest that was to come in this new order, not the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek. His second point then is to prove that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. That was chapter 8. I know it's a long time ago, but that was what chapter 8 began with. In fact, look at verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, this priest. He has a better ministry. What is it? Inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And his Old Testament support for that 
was Jeremiah 31. And he gives us a lengthy section there. It's quoted in verses 8 to 12. In fact, it's so good and so important, I do want to read all of that. So chapter 8, verses 8 to 12 is a quote from Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 and on. Verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now that was really the last big section that we covered. We looked at the better promises of that new covenant. They're all found there in Jeremiah 31 and they're wonderful. Just a a quick uh, recap of that. We looked at the fact that the new covenant has a better nature. It's an, an internal one rather than external. The old covenant was all external. Everything about it was external. But here he says, I'm going to write the laws on their hearts. It's going to be inside of them. That's the very nature of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, the law was given on stone tablets, right? Outwardly. People tied scripture on their foreheads. They, you know, they, they put it on doorposts. Everything was external. But in the new covenant, it's all going to be internal. It was a better relationship promise. You'd have no access to God in the old covenant. We'll we'll see that again today. But he says here, I will be their God. He's going to say, I'm giving myself to them. But also, they're going to be my people. He he takes us to himself. There's a better knowledge. Everyone under the new covenant will know the Lord, he says. And also, and this is the capstone of it, a better forgiveness. I will remember their sins no more. It's a complete forgiveness. In the Old Testament, they were only covered. And you were back the next year and you were sacrificing for sins again. So it's a a better covenant because it has better uh, promises. And therefore, the old covenant is no longer needed. In fact, in verse 13 there, it says it's becoming obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to vanish away, which was true because five years later, the temple was destroyed and the priestly function ended. So that brought us to chapter Nine. Now, what the author wants to do is to address that third element, okay? He's addressed the priesthood. You following me? He addressed the covenant. What's the third one he wants to address? Sacrifices. Someone's listening. Gold star for Briny. All right. So he wants to address sacrifices, or if I can say it this way, Old Testament worship. He wants to continue in that whole Old Testament worship, and he wants to focus on the sacrifices. But before he gets there, before he talks strictly about it, it's not going to happen really till the end of chapter 9 and all through chapter 10. He took us back to the earthly sanctuary, and uh, that, that's what Debbie referenced just a moment ago on July 3rd, apparently, a long time ago. We looked at just those first five verses of chapter 9. He looked at that earthly tabernacle, and he looked at the furnishings and the priestly service of that. Now, why? Well, ultimately, he wants to contrast the, that with the new heavenly sanctuary where Jesus, as our high priest, ministers, and he wants to reveal the limitations of the earthly sanctuary. And when we looked at that, we, we took a little bit of liberty um, because I knew I just had a one-off and then we were going to be, be a, in a big break. I kind of 
really took us to look at what those elements and those furnishings and whatnot in the tabernacle could what kind of spiritual significance it could have. And, and, and Debbie mentioned the, the idea of the Trinity, and you can go back and, and, and watch that. We went into detail about, about that. But what I do want you to remember, and this is really bringing us to point one of today's message, but we, we talked about it on July 3rd, the earthly tabernacle, okay? The earthly tabernacle. What was the point of that? Look at verse one of chapter nine. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So that first covenant, it did have divine ordinances or regulations for worship, and it took place in this earthly sanctuary. Now, if you were, you were here that day that we did this, you should remember it because this room was set up drastically different. Do you remember that? I had, I had chairs squished to the middle, and they were 15 feet wide, and they were 45 feet long to show you the dimensions of the tabernacle. Fits in this room. In fact, it fits in this room from somewhere about the end of this table to the end. It's, it, it's that, that's how big it is, the whole tabernacle. And I'll show you a picture of the tabernacle. I think we have it here uh, that we looked at. Now, that tent-like structure in the middle is the tabernacle, but the whole courtyard and all of that could be – we could say this is, this is the tabernacle. So you have the opening there. Now, if you include the opening and the courtyard, that's 150 feet uh, long and 75 feet wide. That would not fit in here. But the tent-like structure, the tabernacle itself, well, it, it would. So the first five verses that we looked at describe the tabernacle itself and the furnishings inside. What we never got to was to the ordinances of divine service. We didn't really get into that description. And, and the reason is we're going to really get into that today. And we'll also revisit the pieces of furniture that are inside the tabernacle as we study these ordinances of divine service. And along the way, we're going to contrast the significance of the services of the earthly tabernacle with that of the greater one. This is the greater tabernacle that we look at today, and that's the title of the sermon today. So today I'm going to read the passage. We're looking at verses 6 through 14. Let me read through this, and then we'll get into our study. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerning, uh, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of, of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity today to be back into your word, into this book, this wonderful book of Hebrews. 
Lord, we do recognize that we've been out of it for quite a bit of time, and we just pray that your spirit would be here, Lord, that your spirit would move among us and just bring things back to our our minds. Help us to recollect key things, Lord, as we dive into this very important section that so adequately addresses the importance of the, the greater tabernacle and ultimately the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your people would see these things, understand them, Lord, and just grow in their love and appreciation for you as a result. Be with us, guide us into truth, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, real simple outline. We looked at, we're looking at the earthly tabernacle and then two points about that. We're looking at the services and the significance. And then we'll look at the greater tabernacle and we'll look at the same thing, the services and the significance. So first, the services here, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. Now, just look at verse 6 to begin with. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Now it says, thus prepared, which refers to the setup of the tabernacle, as was described in those first five uh, verses. So I'm going to just show you the inside of the tabernacle to show you how it was thus prepared, and uh, just remind you of some key, key things here, okay? Now, so I know it's a little bit blurry, but here's the, the whole tabernacle. You have a main entrance at the beginning. That's the tent, uh, 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 sorry, curtain that, get, that gets you inside. And then you have uh, some pieces of furniture in here, okay? Right here, that's the lampstand. Here you have the table of showbread. And here is the altar of incense. Now, all of these are in one section of this room. You can see it's partitioned off by that, that, that veil or that curtain, okay? That's because this section is called the holy place. It all could be called a holy place, really. But once you pass behind that veil, you are now in the most holy place or the holiest of holies. And behind that veil, you had the Ark of the Covenant. All right. And just to re-familiarize. So once it was built and thus prepared, we're told, then the priests went into that first part and they ministered there. Now, we didn't talk in great detail about what they actually did there. So I wanted to do that as we went through this. Okay, so just looking at that lampstand to begin with. What did they do with that? Well, they had to keep the lampstand going. They had to keep it lit because it's covered in badger skins. The whole thing is covered. It's dark in there. You need, you know, no electricity, so you need light. That had to be uh, filled with oil, and it had to be trimmed and constantly going. So Exodus 21 tells us this exact thing. In verse 20, it says, You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the light, the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil which is before the testimony, so that was outside the veil there, um, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord, and it shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So going back to that picture, that was the lampstand right there. Now we're going to look at that little box uh, structure. That's the altar of incense, and that is found in Exodus 30, verses 7 to 8. It says this, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense, note it, every morning when he tends the lamps. So you're in there, you get the lamps going, now it's time to burn incense in the morning. He shall burn incense on it, and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generation. So twice a day, you to go and burn incense on that little altar of uh, incense. And then the final one there is the, um, the table of show bread. And what they did is they baked bread, loaves of bread, and then they placed these loaves on that table, and we're told in Leviticus 24, 6 to 8, how to do that and when to do that. It says you shall set them in two rows, six in a row. So you had to be good with math. 
and I, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Note this, it's every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord, continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. So you can see there that the priests ministered daily. They were in there every day. There was work to be done. They're put, putting the lights on, putting the, putting the uh, incense on there. And that happened every single day in that holy place. But the most holy place, now that was a different story. In fact, look at verse 7 of our passage. It says, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the high priest was the only one allowed behind that veil, and, and then only once a year. Now, we have the picture up again. Is this the next one? Is it? Uh, there it is. So there's that veil, and that's what it's talking about. The high priest was allowed behind that veil once a year. So nobody went in there for a whole year. So I just imagine the cobwebs that it would be, you know, what's it's no one's hoovered for a long time. So he had to go back there and notice it says not without blood and not at any time. In fact, Leviticus 16:2 says this, and the Lord said to Moses, "Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark." So he's very specific, lest he die. Now that's huge. Lest he, what, what, if I were the priest hearing those commands, yeah, okay, if I don't come in time, lest, wait, lest I, what? Lest you die. Now that's key. Why? For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. This is where God would, would manifest himself. That's just as close to God as anyone ever got. One day a year on that day. Now, now I want to show you a picture of the ark because some things were just described. You had a description of the mercy seat, which is on the ark. Well, that is just the lid of the ark. And, and in fact, we're, if that's described for us, we're talk, it talks about the cherubim being on top and that God would, would appear before or between the cherubim. And he says, I'll appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. So that's the idea there. That one day a year, that priest had to go into that spot and he was told, God would be there, but make sure you do everything right, lest you die. Now, I don't know about you. I don't think I'd be so looking forward to that opportunity. Okay, you know, there was a lot, and we're going to look at this because this is all about access to God, folks, all about access to God. That high priest, he went alone, alone once a year. That day, no one else was allowed in, in all of the tabernacle. It's not like the brothers were out there lighting a the lamp and going like, Okay, buddy, well, good luck. We'll, be, we'll just be outside. They, they were not in the building. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to be there either. No other priest in the tabernacle at all. He had to ritually cleanse himself. He had to bathe himself and put on special garments, linen tunic, linen garments, a linen sash, a linen, linen turban. And then he had that wonderful uh, robe of the ephod, and on it had the onyx stones on his shoulders. And he had uh, six tribes engraved there and six tribes' names engraved there. And then he had the breastplate that had the beautiful... 12 stones, and on each stone, again, the 12 tribes' names on those stones. And so that high priest symbolically, okay, folks, carried the people of Israel into the presence of God on his shoulders and over his heart, okay? He went right into that presence, but he could not do that, notice it said, without blood. He had to have blood to go into God's presence. Now that goes back to what we began with at the beginning. We are separated from God because of what? Sin. 
The wages of sin is death. That's exactly it. So that priest had to go in there with blood, which symbolized death. A life had been taken. We'll look at that in a moment. So he had to take, very specifically, a bull. He had to offer that bull uh, as a sin offering for himself and for his household. Now, if you look back at the picture of the courtyard again, that happened outside in the courtyard. Okay, so that's where he would sacrifice that bull. Um, and that's where the coals will come from when he talks about the coals as well. And then he had to go back inside and, and, and take that blood. Before we get there, he also had to take two goats. Okay, the goats was for the people. And he had to cast lots for these goats. One lot was for the Lord, and one lot was called Azael, and it was for the scapegoat. We'll talk about it. And then he took some of the burning coals from that fire. Uh, from the, uh, he took some um, um, incense, and he went into the Holy of Holies there. In Leviticus 16, 13, it says this, And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony. So it needed to fill up with, 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 with cloud, with the incense over that. And again, it says, lest he die. So again, ritually cleanse yourself, put on all the right clothes, but make sure you do all these things the right way. I'm asking you because you could die. Now, he took some of that blood in a little bowl, and he kept it uh, wet so it wouldn't coagulate. Cl- how do you say that word? And then he would, he would um, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the cover of that uh, ark. And he did that seven times. And then he went uh, back outside. So you're in and you're out. And I'm telling you, folks, every time he came out alive, you know the other priest were going, oh, he made it. And I'm sure he did the same thing. Like, oh, my gosh, that was trip one. Now I've got to go get that. So now he went back out and he addressed the goats, okay? He killed that goat, the one that the lot came up with that said, for the Lord. He sacrificed that goat, and then he had to do the same thing. He had to go back in with the blood of that goat and do the same thing he did with the blood of the bull, and that was for the sins of the people. That was trip two, okay? And so when he was done with that, he went back out again, and this is when he addressed that other goat, that second goat, that goat that came up as the uh, scapegoat. And what he would do is he would just place his hands on the horn or on the horns or his head on the head of the goat. And he would transfer symbolically his sins to the goat. And then someone else would take that goat outside the camp into the wilderness and set it free. It was the scapegoat. It was able to go away and and run off. And that has some special meaning. And I'll give that to you in a moment. Now, all of these things we're told here in our passage, all of that was for the people's sins. Note it committed in ignorance. Did you see it there? Committed in ignorance. So in other words, if you messed up during the year, you brought a sin offering. You, you, you brought that. He's like, oh, I blew it. I did this. You brought a sin offering and you atone for your sin. But what you didn't do is willfully disobey God. That was not tolerated. I just want to make an, uh, your understanding on this, okay? When God's command was laid out, this is the law. And they had to abide by it. And let me give you an example. Numbers 15, 30 to 31. He said this, but the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he's native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people. Why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. So what you couldn't do is willfully disobey God's word. You couldn't say, oh, that's the command. Yeah, I'm not doing that. You're cut off. You're done. You're out of there. So what were these things for? Why were you sacrificing sins committed in ignorance? 
Folks, we commit sins all day, every day in ignorance. You have no idea how much you offend a holy God. I have no idea how much I offend a holy God. What thoughts, what attitudes, what actions offend my God constantly? But they were doing this all the time, committing sins in ignorance, things they weren't even aware of. So throughout the year, they're atoning for specific sins that they knew they had done. But your conscience would just bug you because you knew you were offending a holy God regarding all these other sins. So God made this amazing thing. He called it the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, that one day a year where the high priest would carry you in symbolically, go into the presence of God and atone for all the sins you didn't even know you committed. It was a catch-all of all the sins you did all year long that you had no idea that you really were doing or you had some idea, obviously, because your conscience would bother you about it. So that was what was taking place. Now, what was all of that about? That gets us to the significance of it. That's the services. That's what they did year after year, day after day. But what about the significance? We see it coming to us in verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, that's really interesting. The Holy Spirit, who is the true author of Scripture, is he not? It's the Holy Spirit was indicating something with all of this. It's incredible. In fact, that word indicating in the Greek is delao, and it does mean to make manifest or to, to make known, or you could say to declare something. The Holy Spirit was loudly declaring something with this whole setup. In fact, I would say two specific things, okay? Two things. And the first is this, that that tabernacle, that earthly uh, sanctuary, gave limited access to God. That should have been blaringly clear to people. He says, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, the Holy Spirit teaches us from this Old Testament type, it's a picture, and the limited access the high priest had to God that the true way into God's presence had not yet been revealed. We still, they just still didn't figure that out yet. That was yet to come. It was just simply not accomplished while that tabernacle stood. In fact, as long as it stood, the people could only meet with God once a year and only through the mediation of a high priest. Now, a side note on that, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, that always brings up the question about Old Testament saints. People who died in the Old Testament before Jesus, did they have access to God? Because here it says that what the Spirit was teaching us, that, that there was no one that could get into the presence of God until this way was made open. And I, I, certainly something to ponder and to think about. It certainly is, is evident that, that Jesus dying on that cross, that veil was torn, even symbolically shown that access was opened. We're told in Ephesians 4 that, that he ascended, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. And then it tells us, but, but before he ascended, he descended. And the idea is that perhaps he went to this holding tank, some call it Abraham's bosom or Sheol, where, where saints of the past, saints were, were held. And this wouldn't be a torturous place, you know, but uh, that's where they would be. Maybe it was called paradise because Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise because he was going to go there and take everyone with them to the presence of God. I don't know. And then sometimes people go, but what about the Old Testament Enoch? I mean, Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him. 
it does say God took him. It doesn't say God took him to be with him in his presence, but it does say God took him. But I guess you could say God takes us all because our days are numbered. It is something interesting to think about. It's not the main point here. The main point here is not to figure out what happened then, what happened now. The main point to say access to God did not exist with this old covenant. You just couldn't do it. I don't care how many animals you sacrifice. It just didn't get you there. So limited access to God. The second thing, limited cleansing from sin. In fact, look at verse 9. It says this, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. It simply tells us it was all symbolic. The gifts, the sacrifices, the food, the drink, the, the washings, all of those were fleshly ordinances. They were external. That's what he's saying. And as they were external, they did nothing to help the one who performed the service become perfect in regard to the conscience. How could the conscience be made perfect? How could that have happened? Well, you would need full and complete forgiveness of sins. But the old covenant, that law, could not make anyone perfect. In fact, that's what he said back in chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The way to God, the way to draw near to God is through a better hope, and that comes through the better priest who has the better covenant, and that's Jesus. That's what he's saying. So the people's conscience, getting back to that, concerning sin, I just think about that, was never, ever clear because they'd be right back there again to offer sacrifices whenever they sinned. Because they knew they stood guilty, I'm guilty again. And so there I was again. And guess what would happen every year? Well, here comes the Day of Atonement again to, to, to cover all those sins. And every year, you just always had to pay for your sins. You were reminded over and over and over again that you are guilty. That's what the message was. Now, take you back to those two goats, right? That first poor goat that was sacrificed to the Lord. And then the second goat. What do those goats mean? Well, the first goat was killed. Blood was offered. That satisfies God's justice. Okay? That, does that make sense? We, we, he needs blood to, to satisfy his justice. Uh, a wrong has been made. Sin has been committed. The wages of sin is death. I need to see blood. That goat was killed. Okay, that satisfies his justice. What about, what about that second goat? The second goat was for the people. The second goat satisfied man's conscience. What God was trying to say through that, let the goat go, is that you have now been freed of the guilt concerning the penalty of sin. That goat ran off. But I just imagine once in a while, that goat just found its way back home, right? And it had a little red thing tied up, you know, with the Azazel, and, and, and it was, oh, 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 great, I didn't even be reminded of my sin. I thought it was the whole thing to go away. The problem is, is that you were never free from the guilt. You might have been temporarily free from the penalty because God didn't wipe you out, but you were never free from the guilt. Your cleansing was limited. In fact, just peeking ahead to chapter 10, verse 3, when he gets into the sacrifices, that's a point he makes. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. All you're reminded of is how, how, how wretched of a sinner you are. You're a sinner. You're guilty. So 
They reminded you that while God in his grace did not punish you for your sins, you didn't pay the penalty, you were indeed guilty of them. And every year you were just reminded how guilty you were. So you see the significance there of that earthly sanctuary. It was to show us that it was imperfect. It only provided limited access to God, one guy, one day a year, and limited cleansing from sin, but for a time, until the time of the Reformation. Did you notice that? It was going to be that way until the time, verse 10, of the Reformation. What is that Reformation? The word is diorthosis, and it means to make straight or to set things right until, until something could come along and change it. That's the idea. Well, what was that? When did that Reformation come? Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. There it is. Where's that time of Reformation? Jesus brought it. The promised high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, brought it in. He's the priest of the good things to come. And what came? Well, that brings us into the greater tabernacle. So we've looked at the earthly tabernacle, its services, its significance, and now we look at the greater tabernacle. And look back at verse 11. Christ came as that high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is not of this creation. What's he talking about? What kind of tabernacle is this? Well, think back, particularly if you were here on July 3rd, looking at those first five verses of the tabernacle. The, the thing I kept harping on was that was built according to the, you remember the word? Pattern. And their star right there. According to the pattern, over and over and over again. Make sure you make this according to the pattern. According to the pattern, I give you a picture. I want you to make it like this. Now, have you ever stopped to think about this? If God had a pattern, why didn't he just make it? Now, I want you to make a, ta it needs to be, it needs to, ah, uh, stink, boom, arc. Okay, that's just easier, right? Like, oh, I wanted so many cubits. That, okay, pfft, altar of incense. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be easier? I want these things made. I'll just make them. But no, God said, I want you to make them. That's interesting, isn't it? God wanted them to be made with human hands. Not, not, um, not actually designed. God designed them. He gave them the pattern, but he wanted to make sure that they were made by human hands. It was very important that it's man-designed because it was into this earthly, man-made tabernacle that that high priest went into for the people, not with the people. That's, that's key, isn't it? But this tabernacle, this greater and more perfect tabernacle, is not made with hands. No humans could make this. In fact, he says it's not even of this creation. What is this tabernacle then? What is it that we're talking about? We're talking about the dwelling place of God. We're talking about heaven. This is a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly sanctuary. In fact, we're told about it in Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, the tabernacle of God isn't a building, and it's certainly not made by hands, human hands. The building was simply just made to show us how separated from him we really, truly are. But one day, we're going to dwell with him the tabernacle, in his presence. You know, I think this is another example of uh, one of those already and not yet's in Scripture. We have a lot of those, don't we? That, that, that in a sense, this is already true. 
Uh, do you realize that? Have you ever told anyone that you are actually seated in the heavenly places? Did, did, have you everyone ever used that? Because that's true. It's true. You are seated in the heavenlies. You already have that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say one day. He has done that. You are raised with Christ and you're seated in the heavenly places. Remember that, that high priest, he only went into the Holy of Holies and he, he went one day a year and he went for the people. Okay, But when, when Jesus went into the presence of God, he took us with him. We're with them. We're, we're there. We already have access to the Holy of Holies. We've already entered God's presence because access to God has finally been accomplished. We know that we're there because Jesus is seated there, isn't he? At the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how Hebrews begins in chapter 1, verse 3. And we are in him, in Christ. And so we are certainly seated with him as well. So that is uh, a key key understanding there. And I want to take us back as well to chapter 4, verse 16, if you want to peek at that real quick, because he already highlighted this when he began to talk about Jesus' high priesthood. In verse 16, he said, because he is a great high priest, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come into his presence because we're seated there with him in the heavenlies. Okay, but this is obviously an, uh, a not yet, right? We're not actually physically seated with him. We wait for that to become a full reality one day. One day we will tabernacle with God. That's the greater tabernacle. The people entered into his presence. But how did that happen? Well, let's look at the services here. Let's contrast the services in verse 12. It says this, not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. You should quickly see three things here that made the services of the greater tabernacle, well, greater <laughs> than the earthly services. Jesus didn't come with blood of animals. You can be an animal lover, that's okay. My son loves animals, I, I'm fine with that. But I will tell you, the blood of humans, the blood of man is much more valuable. It's mo much more precious in God's sight because man is made in the image of God. So any human sacrifice, human blood, would be way more valuable. But this is the blood of Jesus we're talking about. Now it says that he came into this holy place with his own blood. And it does bring you back to that picture of the, the high priest and carrying a bowl of, of blood in there. But Jesus didn't have to go carry a bowl of his blood. That is not the idea. Man had to do that. He had to do that because it was symbolic. But Jesus' blood being spilled, we know we sing a lot of songs about his blood and, and we talk about the blood of Jesus that redeems us and all those things are true, but we talk about the blood because it represents his life. His life being spilt out is what it represents. In fact, Leviticus 17.11 tells us this, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes Atonement for the soul. 
So the blood that had to be shed, and it represented that life had been taken. That's why we sing about the blood of Jesus, because it signifies that he gave his life for us. That's the idea. So when his blood was shed for us, he offered that as a sacrifice, and that's the second point. He did it once. Not like that high priest who had to go in year after year. He was a man. He was uh, a human man. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. But as human man, he had one life to give, one life. And he gave that one life, and he gave it once for all people of all time. No other sacrifice need be made. When we have communion, Jesus is not being re-sacrificed for us. Because why? It was once for all. All we're doing is remembering that wonderful sacrifice and the access that it gave us to our God. And the third thing you should see that he obtained eternal redemption. Eternal. How do we know that he obtained eternal or everlasting redemption or forgiveness? How do we know that? How do, how do, you, how do you actually know that? Because he sat down. I know I've made a big point of that. But that's so important. Notice in that tabernacle, there were no seats. The work of the priest was never done. They were constantly busy in the services. But Jesus, when he was done, according to chapter 1, verse 3, sat down. When he was crucified, when he was giving up the ghost, he said, it is finished. That's it. No more work to be done. You have eternal, everlasting forgiveness. So the services of this greater tabernacle are way greater. It only requires one sacrifice and only once. And what that gives is an eternal forgiveness. We don't have to be reminded of our sin. And that's the part that's going to give us next about the significance. Look at verse 13, looking at the significance. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Just stop there real quick. He's going to give us an argument here from the lesser to the greater. He begins with the blood of bulls and goats, and we've already mentioned we know all about that. But notice he also mentions this ashes of a heifer. What is that? It's interesting. Uh, It refers to a red heifer. And just so happened that people were sitting around this red heifer thing on WhatsApp and said, oh, talking about that on Sunday. Ashes of red heifer that's described in Numbers 19. A very interesting thing. In fact, it was a very confusing section for rabbis for years. In fact, still a lot of sort of mysticism around it, to be honest. But this red heifer was unique. It had to be sacrificed outside the camp, not in that tabernacle. It had to be killed outside and burnt. And then it had to take the ashes and put it in some kind of container, and they kept it outside of the camp. And then they kind of gave it a mixture with uh, some scarlet wool and hyssop, and they made this purification water. It was primarily, though, for the purifying of people. If you touched a dead body, you were now defiled. And how do you get clean? Well, you needed the purification of water. You needed that ashes of the heifer. And so they would use that. But it does say at the beginning that they, they, they put that at the, be- at the front of the tabernacle. And it, it's interesting. People were saying, oh, the, the red heifers arrived in Israel because they've been waiting for these red heifers uh, to come. And there was speeches going on and all of that. And it actually made me really sad because they're celebrating something that can only cleanse the outside. Is what he says. It ashes of a heifer for the purifying of the flesh. They are celebrating the fact that they can now make the ashes of a heifer 
and maybe they can, they can purify the, ta- the, the temple and build it, which is all outward. Remember, these things are a shadow, a picture of the reality. Folks, the reality has come, but there are a lot of people still focusing on the shadow, but the reality has come. And this ashes of a heifer, I think the author adds that to emphasize that this is only ritually uh, cleansing the outside. It's a ceremony. So it just doesn't do anything, and neither did the blood of the bulls or the goats. But here comes the greater argument, verse 14. But how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's one thing to say that Jesus is a, a human sacrifice, you know, that was greater than the blood of an animal. But the author adds this, that it was through the eternal spirit. And that is key because that's the Holy Spirit, the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered all of Jesus' ministry. When you read through particularly the book of Luke, he really put, put, pulls that out. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And even Jesus himself, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit is emphasized there. And the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to fulfill the plan of God, which was to offer himself to God. And that's what it says here, that the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God. So you see, Jesus, the Son, through the work of the eternal Spirit, offering himself to God the Father, triune God, incredible, is is at work in your eternal redemption. One of the points I pointed out in the tabernacle structure, seeing the triune God there and the church in the middle. You are secure because it's eternal redemption. The entire Godhead has it. It's incredible. And Jesus was offered without spot, a sinless sacrifice. Those red heifers took a long time to get to Israel because they just couldn't get, get perfect ones. But Jesus was a perfect sinless sacrifice. You see, his divinity is being emphasized. He's both human, but he's also divine. And only his offering through the eternal spirit could secure eternal redemption. Even back in chapter 5, he was described as the author of eternal salvation. It's forever. So how... Has he cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the last little piece of the puzzle. He's, he's done all that. How does that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's simply this. Your sins are completely forgiven. You go back to Jeremiah. The, the, you, the, he remembers your sins no more. Remember um, Colossians chapter 2. In fact, I'd like to take you there. If you have a moment, just make a short left-hand turn to Colossians 2. And we'll kind of close with this passage. Colossians chapter 2 really breaks it down uh, for us in terms of what, what has happened. Uh, look at verse, um, well, look at verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Your sins are completely forgiven. 
the writing of requirements, the Ten Commandments that condemns every single one of us. He says, I've nailed it to the cross. It's complete. You might remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and we're told that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies about the, the horn of salvation that would be raised up, that this, this Savior would come. He says something very interesting at the end of Luke 1, verses 74 to 75. I just want to close with this. He says this, that it's to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. You see, when you look at the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, it was all bound up in fear, wasn't it? All bound up in guilt and fear. Even the high priest going in there once a day, fear. Is he even going to make out, out, out alive? I don't even know. But one day, salvation would come, and we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The reason we can do that is because your sins have been forgiven if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, given him your life. And when you do that, you can freely, joyfully serve the living God. This is a way greater tabernacle, is it not? See, it was forced upon them really in the Old Testament. You just had to kind of do this and then you could serve the God. But now it's all internal and he gives it inside of it. He changes you inside and so now you just can't wait to serve the living God. We get to do that as a church. We get to do that together. We serve one another in serving the living God, don't we? We serve the community in serving the living God. And that is, that is what God has called us to do, to serve him faithfully, to honor him, and to love him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to come back into this wonderful book of Hebrews. But most importantly, we're, we're so grateful that Jesus, our high priest, came to bring the, the, the good things, the better things. That we're no longer under this Old Testament system of worship that requires all of these things to be just right and just so. But instead, you've come to offer your own blood, your own life for us that we could be freely given access to God, freely accepted into his family. What, what an amazing privilege, Lord. We are so grateful. All we have to do, all we have to do is believe in that sacrifice. Believe that Jesus paid that sinless sacrifice, that our sins truly can be forgiven. How many here today would so love to know that, that, that their sins have been forgiven and forgotten, that they no longer have to live with the guilt of those things, that it can be wiped clean, white as snow? Well, we just pray, if there's anyone here today that hasn't made a decision to follow you, to give their life to you, to say, Lord, I'm, tr I'm done trying on my own. I just, I keep trying and I keep messing up and I, I just, I deal with the guilt day in and day out. There's freedom. There is freedom. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I just pray so much, Lord, that you would just move within the hearts of um, your people, Lord. Encourage them, strengthen them to live for you, to, to serve the living God faithfully and obediently because of what you've done for us. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing a closing song.